Hello, may I welcome you to episode 12 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynne. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. I thoroughly enjoyed recording this episode with my guest, a person well known within the industry and one I've sadly not had the pleasure of seeing in a long time now. We discuss how he started in the industry, the issues he's faced, where he sees the industry and we really tap into his passionate side on a certain subject I learned so much about as he discusses it in quite some detail. My guest this episode is Chris Smallwood, Director of Britannia Anchor Removals in Salford, Greater Manchester. Enjoy. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Colin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Welcome to Moving Matters. Yes, thank you. The fated Moving Matters. I've had the pleasure of listening (laughs) to a couple in the build-up. Really good. Really enjoy it. Thank you very much. Can you tell everyone a little about yourself and the length of time in this industry? Yes, uh, I'm Chris Smallwood. I own Anchor Removals Limited based in Salford. Um, But I started in the industry over in York in uh, 1990, so uh, 30 years this year, I would reckon. That's how long I've been in the industry, 30 odd years now. (laughs) So how did you get started? 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) How did you get started in the industry? Uh, well, that that's a story in itself, and it's quite a funny one, really. Um, although it starts with a bit of sadness. I, I was I've never been redundant in my life ever, but I only ever got made redundant once, and that was back in 1989. And there was, um, I think, the market was going through one of those difficult periods uh, towards the end of the Thatcher era, and I got a notification just before my 21st birthday to say I was going to lose my job working as a garage receptionist over in York at uh, a place called Piccadilly Fiat, which doesn't exist anymore. And one of my customers was a was a, a splendid chap called Charles Oliver, who I had fleetingly known because I used to go and watch sports around the place. And Charles was a cricketer, but he also owned a removals company called Whitby Olivers in York, which was very well renowned been around a long time over 100 years even at that time and uh, he was one of my customers and he found out in the January that I was serving the back end of my redundancy notice and walked into the office and said you're good at bovine excretia why don't you come and work for me and that was uh, obviously paraphrased from what he actually said but that was word for word what he said to me would you like to come and work (laughs) for me and of course I'm losing my job so I went yeah, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I don't know where I'm going to be working, but yeah, I'll I'll take a job. A job's a job. And uh, he introduced me to Andy Dickerson, who's become a long-time friend of mine. And Andy uh, interviewed me and appointed me there and there to work on the vans at, at Whitby Oliver's, which was, yeah, uh, how it all began. So you started off on the vans as, as a packer? Yeah, packer porter, packer, and then progressed to driver. Not the class two, but what's known as class three these days, isn't it? So it's um, it's seven and a half ton. But I really enjoyed that. It was fantastic. I loved it. So packer, porter, driver, and then obviously ended up in the office at some point. Well, yeah, I think Charles had always had it in his mind to get me in the office. And I think Andy had seen enough in me during the interview to think at some point, yeah, we could progress this lad. And in 1992, 
two at the beginning of 1992 I progressed into the office and became surveyor as well and I, and I really enjoyed it so I ended up being a bit of both really for a period but uh, but uh, but I enjoyed meeting people I enjoyed going into other people's houses I obviously had some good communication skills back then because when I when I my previous life in the garage reception industry I'd been good at communicating I'd been brought in as a as, as a training mechanic back in in 86 and and I'd been spotted there that I was gifted the gab I think they call it and uh, they dragged me <laughs> into the office and I enjoyed I, I get on with with people I have I have I have a, a way of being able to communicate and get on with people that, that seem to sort of be the founding uh, sort of uh, foundations behind behind what sort of guided my career to where it went really did you get involved in management there as well? Uh, Whitby Oliver's eventually, yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a long story that I uh, I, I was actually uh, asked to go and work for Devereaux's in 1994. My wife Ros was working up in Teesside before we'd just got married, but we were engaged to, to wed. So I moved up to Teesside and joined Mike Devereaux for three years at Devereaux's of Cleveland. I was actually on holiday. Uh, I'd, I'd actually decided to leave the industry in '97. I'd had enough of, of the industry for various reasons, and my wife was teaching, so we, we, you know, I didn't need a job per se. So we went round the world, and whilst I was, I don't think Charles realizes this, but whilst going round the world, I, I, I received a phone call out of the blue from Charles Oliver going again. Same old sort of patter that he has, which was, I hear you've got no job on it. He said, Do you fancy coming to work for me? And I went, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah. So history repeated itself. And I went back as a as a joint manager, which eventually became manager. And and that's where I started to secure a reputation for being half decent at the job, I think is the word. So you can never leave this industry. Once you're in it, that's no in it. You're out. in it for life. No way out, I'm afraid. I've said it before. So can you tell everyone about your company and the services it offers? Yeah, well, we're, 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 I think we're a fairly conventional uh, removalist operation. We do the usual domestic removals. We do, obviously, European work, although I tend to subcontract that out these days. The hassle of having people trying to jump in the back of my van when I'm coming back from uh, France to England doesn't appeal to me these days. <laughs> and, and the fines that come with it. So I, I, I pass that honour on to David Apple. He had a good friend of mine and um, he does my European for me and I do worldwide, obviously, through the Britannia Group. And uh, we do storage, con- containerized storage. We don't do self-storage. I've never really had the financial wherewithal to do that. But I also feel that self-storage is a bit of an anathema to me because I'm customer service driven and, and I think that the self-storage concept, I'm not saying it doesn't work and it's not brilliant or that it, it isn't a great business tool. But for me, I, I'm, I like to, to, to give a proper customer service that people can receive a certain standard. Uh, and I set that high standard and I don't see self-storage as fitting in with that profile. It's very much turn up do what you want to do in your room and, and, and go again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and that's the side of it. And, and a lot of people like the the, the, the no-hassle way of doing that, which is yeah. which is which I'm yeah. sure is appealing to most. But for me, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment. We also do our office and commercial as well, which, which we do a lot of as well. So how did anchor removals come about? Well, that, that started in, in, in 
the actual business started as a man and van operation. A chap called Roy Featherstone was a, was a sailor and he was an alcoholic uh, uh, and he stopped drinking way, way back and he needed something to help him keep his mind off the drink. So he, he started up a man and van mover in 1992 called Anchor Man and Van. I've still got some of the paperwork from that. And he just developed the business and um, he became quite ambitious for it, considering he was in his, I think he was in his, his late 60s when, 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 he, when I met him. And he brought the company into the BAR as anchor removals. And I was chairman of the Northwest area at the time. And, and he was really impressed with how I'd made him feel, feel welcome at the meetings because he said, I didn't know anybody and I felt a complete stranger. And, I, and we befriended each other and, and I started to take an interest in his business. He kept coming to me for advice. And in the end, that became a, I'm ready to retire, Chris. Would you like to get involved? And I said, yeah, yeah, of course I would. So I did so in 2008 in the middle of another crash um, <laughs> and, and, and remortgaged my house to, to pay my own wages for the first year of being in that business to see how it developed. And it, I kind of took it on in thinking to myself, this could be the shortest lived occupation uh, uh, job I've ever had. But it actually went really, really well. The business grew. And it grew, it grew existentially. It went from a hundred and twenty-five thousand DAI watt into it to two hundred and thirty thousand, then doubled to four hundred thousand to where it is now, which is a six hundred thousand a year turnover business. That's a good turnover. Nice yeah. size of turnover that. Yeah. But what size business is it? You do containerized storage. Obviously, you've got trucks. How many trucks do you run? Well, we, we <laughs> thanks to COVID, we've now got we've now got two big trucks and two smaller trucks. Uh, so you've got the two thirty five hundred weights and the two eighteen tonners. But we did have five. But like everybody else, we anticipated the worst things that might happen this year and cut back a little bit. And um, we're all sat regretting it now. I think. <laughs> Yeah, everybody's very, very busy at the moment, which is good. Yeah, now, now it's time to claw some money back for all the expenditure of the PPE and everything else yeah, like that. definitely. So, yeah. What challenges have you had to overcome? I think if we're talking about business management or business ownership um, or, or employment, um, they're two different things. As, as a young man growing up in the industry, and and I don't want this to reflect badly on, on any of the people that employed me, but I, I always felt undervalued in what I did, particularly sort of post ninety four time. And 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 I and I also I also felt like the industry wasn't kind to me for, for, for a long time. And and so there were challenges to overcome there. I think a lot of that led to mental illness and, and some depression which which I suffered quite heavily, and particularly sort of in the in the mid tens to twenties it, it kind of came to a head so they, they were the biggest challenges that I brought into ownership with me I think that, that I've often said to, to people who ask me about ownership because I know when I was managing other companies people said why don't you just own your own business you've got the ability and I kept being badgered about that I said, no thanks I've, I've seen what it does to other managing directors uh, leave them to it <laughs> but but in the end I was talked into um, I was talked into doing it um, and, and and as much as I didn't want to do it, I decided I would do it. And and the biggest challenge, I think, is walking into a business as an owner and thinking, I'm answerable to nobody here, and then finding out fairly quickly you're answerable to everybody. <laughs> and that's yeah, probably absolutely. the greatest challenge in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. 
And if you could change anything from the past, what would it be? Oh, that's a really good question. I think um, I think valuing yourself, valuing myself would be something I'd change. I don't think I realise my own value. I don't think I recognise my own ability either. I think I was a man filled with doubt for a, a, a pretty long time. I never believed in myself as much as I really think I should have done. And I certainly think that's something that, that I could have changed about myself without a doubt. And I'd like to have been, I'd like to have had the knowledge I have now that uh, then that I have now, because that would have been great. That would have been lovely. But you don't get that. You just make the mistakes and, and you learn from them. And I, and I think in the end, it makes you a stronger person, ultimately. So do you now value yourself more today than you did yesterday as such? That's a really good question. And, and actually, you know, it wasn't probably until probably four years ago that I started to realise what my capabilities are and what my value is, not not just to myself, but to my colleagues, to my industry. And I think that that, that was post my period in the BAR. When I look back on that, I don't think I gave the BAR when I was when I was a director at the BAR. I don't think I gave the BAR anything like my best because I didn't. I doubted myself, constantly doubted myself. And I think in the last four years, I did a Goldman Sachs 10,000 small business course that was recommended to me by my good friend, Mike Andrews, who runs uh, Britannia Bradshaws. And he, um, he he didn't harangue me into it, but he certainly was, he can be persuasive when he wants to be. And uh, <laughs> he persuaded me to go for this 10,000 small business course uh, with um, with Goldman Sachs. And it was, it, it was effectively a, a, a business diploma, if you like, that's a, a very condensed business diploma and it was fantastic and it was only then that I think the penny dropped and you and I thought to myself do you know what Chris you're not as stupid as you think you are and and I've never looked back since really I'm so surprised that you undervalued yourself I really am I really really am so surprised that you thought that yeah what is your high point of being in the industry well, I try not to get emotional about this, but every time I mention it, pathos kicks through. I won the um, Salford Business Employer of the Year Award last year. And uh, for me, that was the pinnacle of what had been a lot of hard work over the last 10 years, 12 years. And it was an honour to, to win that. And it meant a lot. Yeah, it was, it, it was literally a a flag waver for, for what I'd been trying to achieve. And it was fantastic. And I'm very, very proud of that. What did it take to win that? Uh, a lot of hard work. Um, one of the things that that we found was we were up against some really big companies um, in, in the Salford area. And um, to win it, you had to demonstrate that you gone over, above and beyond for your, for your workforce uh, and to demonstrate your value to them and 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 you had to have clear criteria of, of things that you had done and that you could demonstrate so it wasn't just a case of filling in a form and saying look I've done really well aren't I clever you actually had to provide evidence of it as well and 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 it you know it was it was a tough award to win to be honest and uh, um, a, a very uh, respected award. When we were called out, it was incredible because we, we were looking at the competition and thinking, oh, my God, we're in against AJ Bell, of all people, you know, which is a huge organisation. 
uh, Mawson Group, another huge organisation within the Salford area, and you're thinking, you've got no chance against these guys. We're just a small removals company in Salford. Elaine Wilcox, who does the Granada TV, uh, she's a journalist, renowned journalist, uh, awarded us, uh, she called us out uh, when, when we'd won. And I was just blown away, to be honest. And it still uh, makes the ears on the back of my neck stand on end, even now thinking about it. Everybody has a chance, Chris. Everybody. Never rule yourself uh, out. Everybody well, I know that now. <laughs> I see that you are a member of Britannia. Mm. What does Britannia bring to the table? A lot. Um, you know, it's, first of all, profile. You are you are part of a group of forty businesses who uh, operate all over the United Kingdom with relationships with companies all around the world. But more importantly, you drive up and down a motorway, you are going to see a Britannia van at some point, and people recognise that. But also, you are part of a family, and that family, for for all our differences that we have, like all families do, we are very close knit. And um, we all deliver a, a high standard of workmanship. And because of that, you get the benefit of recommendation, referral, and, of course, return clients. So, you know, clients who have used you before and, you know, I've, I've lost count of the number of times that, that people have said, oh, I moved with you from, you know, London to, to Manchester. And you go, all right, brilliant. Yeah, no, it wasn't us, but that's not the point. You know, as far as they're concerned, you're all one and the same company. And they appreciate that and you get the benefit of that. So when people say, I've seen your vans or I've, cut, I've used you before or a friend recommended you, a lot of the time it is Britannia, but it's very hard to quantify what proportion of your work is that when you're trying to evoke a, a local image as well. There must be really good networking involved as well in Britannia because a lot of the names that you've already mentioned, like your Bradshaws and your Devros and that, you know, the Whitby Olivers, they're all they're all Britannia members. Yeah, yeah. I spent my entire life in Britannia and, and actually I've made some amazing friends and they are friends. You know, you know, people say, oh, they're acquaintances and colleagues. No, they're friends. You know, I, I can tell you about, you know, Matthew Collingborn, I'll name check him down in Devon. He's one of, my, <laughs> one, of the best, one of the best friends I've got in the industry. I, I know about his life. I know about his family you know it's just you, a shame that he supports a NAF football team oh leave him alone there's somebody got to support <laughs> them haven't they so you know and and actually I Sorry, went to Matthew. a match I went to a match with him once uh to watch my, in Manchester City's darkest days he's my he's my witness to prove I followed Manchester City <laughs> when they were absolutely dreadful and we went to Swindon to watch them play and uh, Manchester City actually <laughs> for a change won that game which tells you how bad Swindon are but that's another story um, <laughs> But yeah, you do, you establish great friendships within Britannia. It is a close-knit bunch, you know, and um, I'm sure we have our disagreements as well around around the country, but all in all, we're, we're there to help each other. And generally speaking, when you pick up a phone to a fellow Britannia member, you're going to get support, and, and that's important, I think. And you get that in the removal industry in general you as do. well. Everybody is friends. Everybody knows everybody else in the industry. Um, yeah, yeah, it's um, been said many a time. We're, so, we're such a close-knit industry at the end of the day we are so, so I, I talk about some of my best friends in the industry within britannia but but actually you know i could name chet mark chudley who's become an absolute rock to me 
you know, with, when you go through the difficult times, you find out who your friends are. And people like Mark Chudley, for example, yeah. is such a considered and articulate man. He just, he, he, you know, he, he's so deep in his in his thoughtfulness and, and he's a cracking bloke to get good info off. And, and, and a guy I spend an awful lot of time with these days is Mike Andrews. Many would say, is he not a competitor? And I suppose he is, but we've never seen each other like that. We go out for coffees together. We, we've even had a bike ride. Took him on a killer bike ride, and he outrode me up the hill and things like that. So, <laughs> um, but I don't resent him for that. <laughs> Won't but be doing no, it again soon. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, you've got you've got some great people who, you know, if if you can trust enough, um, you'll find that they're actually the decent. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there that aren't so, so trustworthy. But but for me, I've been very lucky to to, to have good acquaintances and friendships that that, that are like that. Now, you have a philosophy regarding the treatment of employees, living wage, and zero-hour contracts. Uh, Care to share your philosophy with our listeners? Tap my passionate side. Yeah, well, well, first of all, I think the first thing to do is explain what the living wage is, because there's a big misconception about the living wage. And I'm just going to get very... This will surprise your listeners, Colin, but I'm going to get slightly political for a bit. Um, and... Um, in 2010, George Osborne decided to bring in what he called was the living wage, which was in fact the minimum wage that had already long since been established by the previous Tony Blair government and the Labour government. And he did it, and it was, it was and if you ask Martin Lewis, the money-saving expert person, he will tell you it was a deeply cynical attempt to dilute the message being set by the Living Wage Foundation, which is the real living wage, which we have to call it these days. Now, the living wage is actually set by uh, an independent bunch of people, uh, including the Resolution Foundation, who spend their time analysing low to middle income families and looking at how they can improve lives. It also includes Joseph Rowntree Trust, who uh, analyse and study poverty and, and the causes of poverty and, and things like that. But it also includes Aviva, a major employer, IKEA, a major employer, Everton Football Club, a major employer, you know, so you're talking about a mix. And of course, there's a trade union congress representative in there. And what they do is they all get together and they look at what it costs to live. And what we mean by cost to live is not hand to mouth survival, a bit of food bank here, a bit of food bank there. It's about being able to pay your bills, feed, clothe your kids, you know, and, and go out and actually, I don't know, have a holiday, for example, once a year. It's those kind of things, which I think we would all feel is, is the bare minimum that, that any family should be entitled to. And from that, they put together what is an hourly rate, which is the, the real living wage. At the moment, in the, the larger part of the UK, it's £9.50. I think in London, I'm not sure, I think it's 10.35 or 10.70 these days, because London's obviously cost of living is higher. And, it's, and, it, and it's, it's obviously paired up with the cost of living. So I got involved in the living wage campaign back in 2016 and I started paying it the same year because I thought it was the right thing to do. There's also a deeply historical side to this for me and, and a personal side of it, which is my father was a trade union man and he represented um, the bus drivers of, of York back in the uh, 70s and 80s. And he, I watched him fight very hard for a reasonable wage for his colleagues. And I thought, you know what, I, I always remember, um, my dad's not well at the moment, but I always remember saying to him, 
once when I became a manager. I said, you see that in one stroke, in one week of being a manager, I've done more than you probably achieved as a union man in your life. I gave my lads a wage rise. And I, I, that was probably the most discourteous and cruel thing I ever said to my dad. And and I realised that actually, you know, I, I hadn't because I, I just affected my team, the people around me. I haven't changed the entire area, which is what he did. He, he, he set the busman's wages and then it became almost like a snowball effect. Other companies it, it started to set their standards by the wage that, that was set by him fighting for his members. And uh, and I see the Living Wage Foundation as, as, if you like, a surrogate for my dad. He, you know, we, we go out and we set the reasons why we do it as well. It's not just a case, oh, look, pay people well. They need, they need to have a good life. It's, it's giving the benefits of that as well, which are, you know, if people are earning well, they have less stress in their lives. They know they can pay the bills. So mental illness isn't a problem or not as big a problem. You know, we're aware, particularly here in Salford, I'm involved in domestic violence. Uh, I keep in touch with domestic violence charities in Salford. And, you know, the, the biggest cause of domestic violence is, is money worries. You know, and if you can take those away, all of a sudden you're reducing the cost of policing. You're reducing the cost of, of need for, for food banks, which, which I think is a stain on our national conscience at the moment. You don't need Marcus Rashford having to go around and beg the government to give vouchers out for kids to eat and all these things. Um, but, but also there's a, there's a bigger picture as well, which is that your life chances of a young person whose parent is on the real living wage and has a salary or at least has a constant wage coming in are so much better. You know, it's not a fluke that wealthy people with children, those children's life chances are so much greater than poor people with children um, and it's not just because they smoke cigarettes and watch sky tv please let's just bury that old trope it needs getting rid of so i so i pay my staff that and you know people go yeah but not being funny chris you know you're not going to get guaranteed good stuff no you're right i'm not not going to get guaranteed good stuff but you sort the wheat from the chaff it doesn't mean i employ everybody that walks through my door because i'm a living wage employer it means i pick the best and I get the best. And, you know, one of the massive stats that I keep quoting out, I was asked to take part in a campaign for Salford Living Wage City because Salford are looking to become a living wage city where they have so many employers within the, within the region that are living wage employers. And, and if they achieve that, then they become a living wage city. And I said one of the, one of the greatest benefits I've ever had of, as a living wage employer is my sickness and absenteeism dropped 300% in one year. In one wow. year. Uh, and that's not made up. I've got evidence to back that up. And people go, oh, that's an exaggeration. No, I cut my, cut my sickness massively as a result. I also, you just have to look at our reviews. You know, we don't censor the reviews. We don't argue who gets our reference line reviews. We just send them out an email. Every client is a process. You, tick, you have a tick list on the front of the file. And the last thing is, have you sent a reference line review? You send it out. You just look at them. They speak for themselves. But I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what paying the living wage and no zero hour contracts means really to me as a business. Uh, last year, or the year before last, we had an issue with a vehicle that had broken down in Trafford Park on a Saturday and we couldn't get anybody to come and collect it. And I said, let's just leave it till Monday. We know it's exposed, but there's nothing I can do about that. We'll just make sure it's locked and, and protected. 
And unbeknown to me, two of my staff had gone out on the Sunday with a set of jump leads, jumped it, started and got it back to depot. And it was only when I came in on the Monday morning to ring up to organise the breakdown crew that I'd found out that they'd done that. They had no intention of telling me. And that's the kind of loyalty looking after your staff commands. And, and I think that if ever I could, could use anything to persuade the industry to, to become a, a living wage industry, it would be that. And I, th- and I look at my earlier life, and I was talking to you earlier, Colin, about treatment. I see the way that, that removals men were treated 30 years ago, and it wasn't good. There was no manual handling training. There was no fire, mandatory fire training. There was no, there was no pastoral care for employees. They were just treated like dirt. And as, as I say, I don't mean that in any disrespect to people I've worked for, but I saw it in other areas. And sadly, I still see it today. Not necessarily amongst my peers, and, and there are some brilliant, brilliant companies out there who I think could, with a stroke of a pen, become living wage employers tomorrow. But there are a lot of employers out there who sadly treat their staff abominably, particularly with day rates. You know, paying them. I, I had a, a WhatsApp exchange, unbeknown to the individual, I was doing it through a third party, and it's, the WhatsApp exchange was saying, I'm earning £50 a day. And how many hours are you working? Well, it depends. And okay, if you work 12 hours, do you still get paid £50 a day? Yes. And you're just thinking to yourself, there is something morally bankrupt about that. You know, bear in mind that the, the, the minimum wage is, you know, what, £7 something an hour now. So, you know, they were earning less than the minimum wage. And I, I'd like to change that. That's the thing I'd like to change about the industry. And so I thought I'd lead by example and become a living wage no zero hours employer. I have to say that, you know, we do have, and, and I'll conclude this, I do have a zero hours contract employee. His name's Mark, Mark Weston, and he's because uh, he works on the ships as a full-time job. And when he comes back, he gets bored very quickly. So he comes and works for me to fill his days up and earns a bit of extra pocket money as well. But the fact is, he's earning good money on his, on his, on his day job. And, and we are his, if you like, his, his night job. So, yeah, I, 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 I thought I'd leave by example, and, and I think it's been great. And, and I can tell you now that I get a huge amount of customers booking me based purely on the fact we're a living wage employer. And, and that makes me very proud. So if anybody listening wanted to follow suit, what do they actually need to then do? Just pay £9.50 an hour to your staff. You may not even need to raise your wages. There's some, as I said, there are some brilliant employees in our industry probably pay their drivers a lot more than £9.50 an hour, probably guaranteeing the hours as well. You don't have to guarantee the hours, by the way, in living wage, but I would suggest just get guarantee them at least 16 hours just so that they know they've got some money coming in, even if it means they have to go off and work for somebody else to make up the difference when they need to. You know, just make sure they're earning some money. But most of the companies, I think, most BAR companies could easily become living wage employees tomorrow. Certainly, I think the Britannia members could. And I just say to you, just, just contact Living Wage Foundation, livingwagefoundation.org, I think it is, and, and just ask them for a form. And you fill in a very simple five-minute form and you signed up. And just make sure you pay your guys £9.50 an hour or more. I will put that link in our show notes. I think it sets us apart, Colin. I think that's the thing. It sets you apart as a business. When you go and tell your customers, the person that matters most to me is the guy that steps over your doorstep to do your removal. 
is the most important person to me because they're my customer facing people, whether it's male or female. And, and sorry to, to, to sort of put it in a male context because I appreciate we've got females in the industry as well. But, you know, when that person walks up to your door, you know that they've been invested in. There's lots more you can do as well. You know, you've got to engage with your staff. You've got to talk to them. You've got to make sure that they're part of your decision-making process within your business. Sit down with them. Listen to them. They've got the best ideas in your business. Something goes wrong on the job. What went wrong, guys? Well, this is what went wrong. Well, what can we do to make it better? Well, we could do this. Oh, that's easy. Well, let's do it then. You know, and you'd be amazed how many times I have that conversation. Amazed, you know. And I wish I could sit my staff with me now and, and, and let them tell you because. And they would they would say all the things that I'm saying. You know, we sit down, we talk things through, and we we come up with solutions. I absolutely agree with you on that one. I absolutely agree with you. It's a bit like my clients. Obviously, I'm in IT, not in the removals, but IT for the removal industry. For those that don't know, and I can't improve our software unless my users tell me the issues. So when they do phone up for support, whilst I've had staff in the past answer the question, put the phone down, that's it, job done. I'm not like that. What is the problem? Here is the solution. Right. How did you get to that problem in the first place? Because we want to stop you from getting to that problem. So you have to have an understanding. You have to sit down with people, whether they be your staff or even your customers. You have to try and find out what went wrong at that moment in time and how can you make improvements so that it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And it's a great analogy, that. Spot on. What one thing would you change within the moving industry? I think I've given you a big clue to that now, which is uh, the working, <laughs> conditions, working conditions and pay of the, of, of the operatives within the industry. I'd be a flag bearer for them. As I said, nothing guarantees you good employees, but if you can surround yourself with really good employees by getting the best in because you offer the best, then I think you're onto a winner. I, I genuinely, genuinely believe that, that if we as an industry could do that, I think we would raise the profile of our industry to things that you could only dream of in a TV advert. I know a lot of people often say, the BAI, the BAI is brilliant, it's the best thing since sliced bread, but nobody knows about us. Become a living wage organisation, become a living wage association and see what happens then. You would be plastered over every billboard there is because I can tell you that the living wage is looking for a, for a win, a success, a demonstration of making a difference to people's lives. And, and if you can become a living wage employer, that, that is what you are doing. You are changing people's lives and there's no greater reward. What advice would you give to a young Chris just starting out in the industry? Stop yapping so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you know, no, definitely Dave, not. David Bunting, another good friend of mine, once said to me, Chris, oh. <laughs> you're the kind of guy who will take 10 words when one will do. <laughs> and uh, he was right. He was right back in the day. But again, I, I'm not making excuses, Mr. Bunting, if you're listening in. But yeah, that was all part of this lack of belief in myself that I had to convince myself about things and, and got overly involved in things, couldn't keep my mouth shut. When I'd made the point, I had to go on and reinforce the point and things like that. So, so you were previously a DED, am I right? Yeah, directly elected director, that's right, of the BA. Would you change anything in that term that you had? Because you said earlier that some parts that you would like to change in the BR, you didn't give your best as such. Would you like to do that role again? 
I think I would be better at it this time around. I've got the experience and knowledge, but I also have the belief in myself, which I didn't believe. I, I, I used to sit in meetings and not say an awful lot. And probably what I did wasn't particularly relevant at the time. Or, or, or I might come up with the odd nugget every now and again, but generally speaking, I don't think I contributed in a way that I think was in the best interest of the association. I think I was very negative as well, by the way, back in those days. I'm much more positive now. And again, mental health and depression makes you like that. And and I think I could contribute quite substantially now to the BAR. But I've never been asked and, and, and I've kind of taken a step back from all that lately. So, you know, if, if anybody ever does decide to pick up the phone and speak to me, I would never say no again. I'd never say never. But whether I'd have the time these days, not sure. Definitely never say never, Chris. No, never say never. <laughs> So where do you see yourself and the industry in the next five years? Is there anyone ready to step into your business shoes? Well, actually, I've got a strategy in place for mine. Um, I've, got a, I've got an amazing... I, I've been big on bringing females into the industry, and I brought Ellen, Ellen Clay as she was, Ellen Hughes as she is now, into my business uh, quite some time ago. I spotted Ellen when I was working for Britannia Sestrian for a very short time. And I realised what an absolute talent she was. And she now works for me. She is, I gave her 5% of my business to become a director with me because I value her that highly. She's intelligent, she's smart, she's talented, and she's my successor. She doesn't want to be, and she's telling me she's not. <laughs> and she's not letting me retire. She's not retiring. We, in fact, my wife was, was overhearing a phone call with her. Well, I said, I'm retiring next year. She said, no, you're not, but... No, she, she, she will be, but what I want to get is some support in building blocks in place. I mean, I'll never leave the business. I'll never leave the industry. You know, you don't get good at... There's some things that, that, that you just don't get good at, and, and, and when you are good at something, you should hang on to it and, and, and enjoy it for what it is. And, and I enjoy, as deft as it sounds, there's moments we all don't enjoy the industry, but I enjoy the industry in general, and, and I am good at it, and I realise that now, and... And I, but I'd like to just have it where I keep my hand in instead of working flat out like we are doing at the moment. Yeah, I, Ellen's, Ellen's next in, in command. In terms of the industry itself, it's been around a long, 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 long time. Three, four, maybe 500 years, I think, if you start trading. Probably longer than that. Probably, probably since the days of the Egyptians building pyramids. I'm sure removals and, <laughs> and, and haulage was involved. But, um, but yeah, I, I think the, the industry is a very, very... Um, durable industry i think it's uh, i think it's resilient i think the people in it are resilient as well fantastically resilient actually you wouldn't stay in this industry if you weren't and i think it's got i think the future's always going to have challenges and and we all know that with the event of the departure from the eu with or without a deal and and the current covid crisis these are all challenges but we 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 somehow always find a way of overcoming them. In, in, when I first took over the business in 2008, you know, it was one phone call a week and that was a salesperson. And so, you know, <laughs> the times change and, and, and technologies change. And I think people like you, Colin, with your software will play a significant part in making this industry far more efficient, better run, and, and, and hopefully as well um, more greener and environmentally friendly, which I think we aren't particularly good at at the moment. But I think it's something that we all need to work on. I think we all want to do the right thing for the kids and the grandkids. So. Absolutely. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off? 
I know you've got your beloved Man City. <laughs> Indeed, yes, that's uh, that's well known amongst all. In fact, I ring Mr. Mr. Collingborn up at Lanes every now and again and say it's Pep Guardiola, and of course, none of his colleagues know me very well. So, so they go, "I've got Pep Guardiola on the phone," and uh, Matthew immediately falls off his chair laughing, knowing what's coming next. So, but but yeah, no, I do love my football. I'm passionate about Manchester City. I'm also passionate. A lot of people don't realise, but my my true passion is is my rugby league. Team. Which is York City Knights, which I, I played rugby league when I was younger, so um, it, it's a sport that's very close to my heart. So uh, yeah, I enjoy my rugby league. I also enjoy getting out on my bike and riding. It's the most cathartic thing you can do. Is just get out on your bike and ride and ride and ride. And you come up with most of your business solutions on that bike ride. So yeah, I enjoy that too. Are you a road bike or mountain bike? Road bike man. Yeah, yeah keep telling people the next one might be the last one not because I don't like it but because I keep thinking I'm going to get knocked off at some point so yeah well it's not without its risks let's put it that way I have both but I'm generally found on my mountain bike yeah what wise I'm not that keen on cycling down a road and having cars come we can't socially distance at the moment so you can't even get a car to stay over past a meter away from you <laughs> but I prefer to just get out in the woods out in the countryside and yeah I, I oh, love I love living on the edge, Colin. I love living on the edge. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And finally, I like to end my podcasts with a funny moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? Of all your questions, Colin, this is the one that's vexed me the most because if you listen to all my funny moving stories, <laughs> they are all deeply censored. Deeply censored, or would Everybody cause offence, or would cause deep offence to somebody. So, so the, the only one—I'm <laughs> not even sure if this is funny, but it was funny to me. And I think it, what's funny to to my warped sense of humour compared with everybody else's is is open to uh, is open to interpretation. But we, um, when when I was working on the vans, I I had a great mentor on the vans, a chap called Ronnie Wright. His son Nick works for McCarthy's of Leeds at the moment. And Ronnie was a, he was one of those people that as a, as a wide eyed sort of 20 year old, I used to look up to him because he had muscles and he was, he, I mean, he was in his sixties, but he was built like a brick house and he had these piercing, <laughs> dazzling blue eyes. And because Nick's might, might listen in on this, I best not say too much more about his love life, but it was a complex <laughs> thing. And I used to think, God, I wish I was like you, Ronnie. And uh, we went on a job one day. And Ronnie was a very principled man, a bit like me. We we got to a job and it had been one that I'd actually surveyed, so I was still on the on the sort of interim between moving up and, and working on the vans and, and it was a, a young Jewish lady. She's a lovely lass. I really got on with her. And when I went to see her in the survey, she she told me why she was moving. She was moving to London because she had a, a guy over, well, several of her neighbours were anti-Semitic. So they were making her life miserable. Uh, they were painting swastikas on the door and putting bricks through her window. And, and it, was a, it was a horrendous, horrendous tale of, of horrible things that were doing to her. And I said, well, listen, don't worry, we'll look after you. Um, so I, I actually, I, I can't even remember if I persuaded Ron to come on this with me or not, because he wasn't one for getting on the vans and loading up vans, but we must have been busy that day and he came with me because um, he was the warehouseman at Whitby Oliver's. So um, we arrived at this property and they had deliberately parked cars in front of her house. She put her bins out to, to sort of clear space and they park their cars and throw their bins on the floor and put all the rubbish on the floor. Ron and I arrived and we tidied up the rubbish and we put the bins back and um, 
I said, right, Ron, who's going to go over and knock on these doors and, and ask them to move the cars? And he went, we'll do it together. I said, right, well, I'll start with this one and I'll, you do that one. So we knocked on the doors. And the first three were a bit grumpy, but eight o'clock in the morning, dragged out of bed, were prepared to move the cars, even though they'd put them there just to be obstructive. So they moved the cars, but the fourth one was less accommodating. I knocked on his door and he just said, F off, if you pardon the phrase. <laughs> so I went over and I said to Ron, <laughs> I said to Ron, he said, uh, I've, I've asked that guy, but he's, he's not keen to move. <laughs> he said, leave it with me. So he walked over and he knocked politely on the door initially and the chap came to the window just like he had with me. He was looking down from the first floor with his robe on and he shouted, no, sorry, mate, what what, what are you want? And he goes, oh, can you move your car? And he went, no, same reaction. So he came back into the house with me, did Ronnie? So, so and I thought, oh, he's going to come up with a strategy here, is Ronnie. He's going to come up with a strategy of how we get this get this vehicle in. And so he said to the lady, which, which one is your big problem, um, neighbour? And she Julie pointed to the one we just knocked at the door of. He said, right, I just wanted to check first. So he walked back out of the house, stormed across the road and thumped on the door with a fearsome bang. And the bloke came and went, who do you think you are? And banging on my door and this, this row ensued. Uh, and I was thinking, oh, this is not going to end well, this. So he kept banging on the door and he said, I'm not going to stop banging until you come down and move your car. He said, I'm not going to move it. He said, well, that's okay. He said, you see that 18-ton truck? He said, that 18-ton truck's got a grill that will sustain the weight of your car. So when I drive into the back of it and ram it the rest of the way down this street, he said, you can go and pick it up and clear it so cars can get through. <laughs> and this bloke came down, and, he, and, and, and as he walked out the door, he squared up to Ron. Now, Ron is not a bloke he squared up to. He was an ex-army boxer, from what I recall. And Ron just walked over and said, come on then, and walk towards him. And I've never seen a guy move so quick in my life. He just <laughs> shot from where he was straight into his car. And Ron went after him. He didn't just leave it. At, you've, you've got the result, Ron. Just park it at that and move on. No, he went after him. And the guy shot off down the street. And I don't know how he got back in his house, but I'm guessing he must have run round in his slippers around the back lane that was, was round the back of his house and gone back into his house. And that was the funny And the, the, the face of the lady in the house was, it was just fantastic. Fantastic! She was crying her eyes out, and 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 she was crying her eyes out in fear, absolute fear. And Ron said, "Don't know why you're crying, love. You've got nothing to fear while we're here." And I'm thinking, God, Ron, what have you done? Uh, no complaint, nothing. As far as I'm aware, Andy Dickerson was totally oblivious to all this going on. So, uh, so yeah, it is what it is. I'll have to pop Nick an email and let him know about that story. Yeah, listening. yeah, I had a, I had a lot of good memories with Ron. I could tell you so many that that frankly would encourage my staff to misbehave. So I'm not going. To. <laughs> I suppose that's the only trouble with these stories. Isn't yeah, it? and you're the boss of the company. <laughs> yeah, just remember uh, that was yeah. then. This is now. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure to record this episode with you. Absolute pleasure, and it's great to see you again. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Many thanks. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 12 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice. And please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to Chris Smallwood of Britannia Anchor Removals for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Chris. 
If you would like to know more about Britannia Anchor Removals and the services they offer, together with further information on the Living Wage Foundation, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners, or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by either completing the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk, emailing me, host at movingmatterspodcast.co.uk, or tweet me at movingmatterspc. Well, that is all from me for 2020. But before I close, I would just like to thank all of my previous guests for being on Moving Matters. Gary Whedon, Nigel Shaw, Anthony and Karen Groves, Jeff Archer, Paul Bullock, Ian Studd, David Bunting, Ian Palmer, Greg Wildman, Michael Dunbar, Mairead Almandras, Tommy McNee, Alexandra Lane, Calvin Tickner, Kira Malarkey and Daniel Braddock. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the first dozen episodes and are looking forward to many more guests in 2021. So until next time, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Bye.